Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Coach's Corner. I'm Coach Andrew Poretz from Ingenuity Coaching. I help people discover and fulfill their passions and greatness. My mission, to inspire and challenge you to dream big dreams and with my coaching, help you to manifest those dreams into reality. You can visit my website at www.myfuturecoach.com and follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash coachandrew. If you're listening live and you have a question, the phone number here is 646-929-2893. Again, that's 646-929-2893. If you call, you'll be able to listen to the show on the phone, and if you press the number 1, I'll know you have a question for me. We also have a live chat room right on the show page where you can feel free to join in and post questions. Our guest tonight, Nancy Michaels, is a leading reinvention expert for boomer women, those who've experienced life changes and anyone looking to completely reinvent their lives. Nancy knows life's trials and tribulations well. She's earned her expertise through life experiences such as infertility, adoption, parenting a child with special needs, in particular Asperger's, as well as separation, divorce, and single motherhood at at midlife. Nancy was also the grateful recipient of a liver transplant in 2005. To read more about Nancy, go to www.nancyspeaksout.com. Nancy Michaels, are you with us? I am here, Andrew. Thanks so much for having me on. My pleasure to have you on. So, uh, you, know, you um are you talk about reinvention. Actually, I I noticed on your webpage the 3 Rs, the relationships, resilience, and reinvention. And I think we'd first really like to talk about reinvention since I mentioned you in in the introduction of reinvention. So are you, to paraphrase Frank Zappa, the the mother of reinvention? (laughs) I'm not sure, although I'll take that title. Uh, You know, know, I think that it's uh, so interesting, and even listening to you do the intro for me, sometimes I don't even see or realize, you know, myself in that way. But because I really have this sort of picturesque, uh, ideal life until I hit 41, and then it seemed that, or 40, and then everything kind of came crashing down on mm-hmm. me. And, um, you know, I wouldn't want to relive a minute of that, you know, in the past, but I think sometimes now it was my greatest gift because my entire perspective changed. And even though, you know, I had had some some hardships or challenges that I think we all face in life, regardless of who we are or, you know, what, how blessed we are financially or mm-hmm. health-wise or, you know, other financially otherwise. But, you know, still life can get um, the best of you when you have upsets. And, I mean, in my 30s, I, you know, my 20s was like, gee, what am I going to do with my life? And, and I ended up, I had a great job in television. I actually worked with Matt Lauer, who was now the co-host of the Today Show. He had mm, a show sure. in Boston, and I was his publicist, and, you know, we had a great time together. And then we both got laid off at the same time, so that was a little, you know, unnerving. And instead of going back into the workforce and trying to find something, I thought, the economy isn't good, and I bet there's a lot of small businesses out there who need help. And so I sort of reinvented myself really young, um, and yeah, how did you going. how did you help small businesses at that time? Well, I did marketing and public relations, and I basically t- took all the skills that I had learned, not only at that TV station, but also I had worked at an agency prior to that, and just applied them to myself, and, and then I applied them to helping my clients. And, 
it was economical for them because they weren't hiring a full marketing department. Mm -hmm. And I was able to have a few clients and still have, you know, some flexibility and apply those skills that I had learned and gone to school for and had work experience in. And then, you know, I got married and, you know, you know, it wasn't right away. It was about eight years after I got married. So I got married fairly young at 24. I think that's young. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was in my 30s and thought, okay, this is great. Now I want to start a family. And I, I just thought that, you know, that all, everything would sort of happen as I wanted it to because even if I didn't want, you know, the layoff because I really enjoyed working in television, I, it wasn't very difficult to sort of reinvent myself then and just decide, okay, I'm going to go out and get some clients and, I can do this kind of work, and I had written some books in between, and I thought that would help, and it was certainly a great brochure to have, but, you know, once I started to, you know, we decided to start a family, that was difficult, and I had had miscarriages and was extremely emotionally devastated by that, because I think that for people who are control freaks, like I think Mm -hmm. a lot of entrepreneurs, (laughs) we feel like, you know, we can create whatever we want in life. There are some things that really truly are beyond us. And so that was one of those issues. And and it was interesting because I was I know I remember this day specifically that feeling just so sorry for myself. And we lived on this cul-de-sac. We had moved out of Boston into the suburbs in Concord where I still am. And we were the only people on this cul-de-sac that didn't have kids. And I almost felt like it was uncomfortable to even be outside in a neighborhood it's like we have no reason to be here and i remember reading the sunday newspaper or thinking about reading it on a monday morning and getting ready to throw it in the recycle bin and something said to me you know just pull up the local section like you need to start to get involved and sure find out more about what's going on here maybe you can volunteer or do you know think about other things besides yourself and what you're going through and literally that it changed my life because I looked at the Northwest Weekly section of that paper and I saw this picture of this uh, gray-haired woman with three Chinese babies on her lap and it was an article about a a retired pediatrician who had uh, practiced in Concord who was now going off to China to help individuals and couples adopt babies from China Mm. and I immediately became focused on that and said, okay, I'm on a tear now, and called called her directly. I called the agency. Uh, she was in China at the time, but the agency said, yeah, the next open house that you would need to attend is on this date, and the approximate length of time it takes is anywhere from, you know, 8 to 14 months. Uh, and so I, I was immediately thinking, Okay, this is this is an answer. I mean, we could absolutely adopt, and and then I got on on the phone. And it's the credit of my ex-husband now, but my husband at the time. I said, "Guess what? You know, we're expecting a baby, and she's coming from China." And fortunately, what was his he was very open to it. And mm-hmm. again, to his credit, I mean, um, he was like, "Oh, okay, that's great." I said, "You know, there's a one-child policy, and there was at mm-hmm. the time." I think that has changed since I've been fortunate now to adopt two babies from China. But is that the uh, ultimate you know, Chinese takeout? Uh, you know, stop it, <laughs> Andrew. Why? <laughs> come on. No, okay. I, I recently I recently heard a speaker say, you know, after he became uh, paraplegic, he said, 
you know, we had wanted to have more kids and wasn't sure if we could do it. And and, I, and so I said, hey, where do babies come from? They come from Guatemala. <laughs> <laughs> In my case, they came from China. And I am so grateful to have the two two babies I do have from there. But, you know, between these two adoptions, because I can honestly say the happiest time in my life was that first year that I got my daughter, mm-hmm. Chloe. And I, I love to say her name was Chloe Anying Rose Goldstein. Oh, my God. Because everybody needs to give their kid a reason to go to therapy. <laughs> <laughs> Chloe had a good start. Um, my ex-husband is Jewish. I'm Catholic. You know, she's Chinese. We started the United Nations uh, program here in Concord, Massachusetts, probably the WASP capital of the country. And, um, but, you know, it, it, that is America, and that's how life, you know, is now. And well, you know, a great... one of the, the, in growing up, one of the few black kids in my neighborhood in Bayside, Queens, was a guy named Howie Goldstein. Oh, and my it was, God. It, so you and, it was, that. and I'm not making this up. That was, and it was, you know, that's this a true fact. I think he, I think his father was Jewish, but um, but it was you would never have known it, and and it was I can only imagine how things were for him. You just made me think of that, by the way. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, this is um, yeah, diversity is uh, our middle name here. <laughs> so, but you know, I mean, we got this baby, and we're so happy. And as soon as I could put that application in to go back again, I I did. And I remember putting Chloe in the car and driving down there, like, first thing, the first day that I could have, and finding out that night that I was expecting a baby. And I thought, really, like, in the past, it wouldn't last. It wouldn't, you know, I'm still going ahead with this adoption. I'm not Mm. going to count on this. And you know what? If this happens, that would be wonderful, and that would be a great thing but if it doesn't too i really was a parent already and i felt very connected to to her obviously and and just wanted to repeat that so we slowed the whole application process down because every month i was just getting bigger and bigger and realized okay this baby actually is coming and i had a you know at the time chloe was only 13 months when i found out i was pregnant so it was a very fast process to become a parent of three uh, within less than four years. So, you know, you go from having no children after eight years of marriage to having three under the age of four. <laughs> that sounds tremendously overwhelming. Well, it's an, it was very intense. And, and at the same time, too, fortunately, you know, my husband at the time, his business was really doing well. I started to take off, and I was doing a lot of work with major corporations who target the small business market as customers. And I, I think in 1997, right after my son was born, I got a call from Staples, and I started doing in-store seminars for them for all of their new store openings. And within three years, we did 600 stores. So I was on the road a lot. I had three small children. Um, my oldest two had some challenges. My daughter, believe it or not, I mean, my son was diagnosed with Asperger's when he was about four or three, uh, which is, you know, on the autism spectrum. And I'm very grateful that he's high functioning. But, you know, everything was delayed in him. He wasn't walking until he was about 18 months old. He had never crawled. He didn't speak until he was four. 
And it's interesting. His first word was Chinese, not mom, mama, not dada. It was, and I think he had heard it so much in my house that he's a perfectionist even to this day. If he can't get it right, he doesn't even attempt it, which is why I was really kind of worried because he wasn't walking, he wasn't crawling. Mm -hmm. He wasn't, you know, he was really just, he waited until he could actually walk completely. I don't think he fell once. Once he started, but it was definitely about six months after my oldest daughter had. So it was a very different experience having him, you know, as as my second child um, than my than my first. Um, But and my oldest daughter too, who was five, had just started kindergarten right around the time my son was diagnosed with autism, and she had a horrific case of eczema, which you would think is not that big of a deal. It's a skin issue but condition but i'll tell you if you have somebody in your life who has that i i grew i grew up with horrendous horrendous eczema so i i i can only tell you i so feel for you for you it and your was, child it was traumatic it was really one of the worst you know she just had a horrible year in kindergarten mm-hmm. at the same time my son was being diagnosed with asperger's and i had a new baby you know home from china so to say the stress level was at a max is an understatement. And I think, you know, in large part, I never want to have my kids listen to this or think that they are in any way to blame mm-hmm. for, you know, but I think that, I think this is why statistics show that, you know, more than, I think, 80% of marriages where you have kids with special needs and in divorce, because it truly is. It's intense. It's very difficult to manage and deal with, and and not blame each other, or you know, or be just have be uh, have a short fuse about the whole situation. But um, you know, we ended up changing schools with my oldest daughter. I had to try to get you know some interventions happening with my son, and um, and literally, this is the first year coming into September that I will have two kids in the same town going to school, but their entire lives, they've been in three separate towns and three separate schools up to this point, which is so very So you were running around too. like crazy. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, we ended up getting an au pair just to be a driver. I had always had help with, you know, an older woman who, mm-hmm. thankfully, my kids didn't have to go to daycare, and they didn't, you know, they went to preschool, but they were really home for the most part, and I worked from home for many years. And she was an older woman who was fantastic, who was really like their grandmother today. They still call her Nana and her husband, Papa, and they see them often. And fortunately, she was there to help me. And then ultimately, it got to the point where she really was, you know, getting older and wanted to retire and didn't want to do so much driving. And we got no pair, really, to just drive them from place to place more than anything. It was just, um, you know, necessary just in order to have them, you know, attend the schools that were best right. for them and and get the, you know, and, and all the appointments and all the things that go along with having kids with, you know, special needs. And I wouldn't say my oldest daughter has special needs, but ultimately what worked for me with the eczema, and we had tried everything. We went to homeopaths. We went um, to the head of pediatric dermatology at Children's Hospital here in Boston, and nothing was really working. I mean, she ended up hospitalized the last week of her kindergarten year after not being invited to one birthday party or having one play day at mm. anyone else's house, which was, as a parent is just so painful. Sure. 
And what, what, what finally worked? I'm just curious. Well, what, and I, I definitely want to share this because the one thing that worked for her, it wasn't diet, it wasn't, you know, um, steroid creams, that was a temporary fix. What worked hmm. was UV light treatment. You know, it's so interesting. Um, now, when I was a kid, I had this when I was a kid, and what was available back then in the 60s is uh, a lot of these things they don't do anymore, and, and for some reason, some of them are, are, thank God they don't do, they did things like radiation treatments for skin, uh, believe it or not, and the, the result of that is that last year I had my thyroid removed. That, mm. That's in a fallout of eczema, believe it or not. Uh, but we did try, uh, you know, they didn't try UV light treatment. They had, they did, um, it was like an under, it was an ultraviolet light, but I re, I almost got blinded by it because the doctor well, didn't well, yeah, tell I mean, me she used not to, to have, look at the light. Yeah, she used to have glasses that she would go into yeah. a booth. Literally, it started off, it was four days a week for like 30 seconds. So I drive to the doctor's appointment. You know, and four minutes later, she came out, and I drove back home. We did this every day for, like, the first six months. Um, and then, mm. but ultimately, like, you know, it didn't happen immediately either. It took about six months before we really could see the difference. But thankfully, my daughter today is almost 15. She'll be 15 on August 13th. And she has been eczema-free, I would say, it took a year or maybe a year and a half to fully clear up. And it was a commitment, but I'll tell you, it was so worth it in the end. And and we, like I said, I mean, I did try everything. I took her to mm. Westport, Connecticut, to a homeopath. Um, we did the steroid cream. She ultimately ended up on antibiotics, too, at Children's Hospital yeah. because I just couldn't. Wow. She was infected and... Horrible. It was really horrific, and I'm... You know, I'm so uh, sorry that you had it, but I, it's nice to talk to somebody who understands what that's all about because it really is hard for people to grasp. Oh, uh, yeah. oh, yeah, and, and, and I have friends who have not eggs with the other, the other horrible psoriasis. Psoriasis, right? Just as intractable for some people. Yeah, it really can be debilitating. I mean, she was literally suicidal at age five, getting up in the morning and saying she wanted to die. I had a woman making clothes for her to cover her entire, like her, she had it on her hands and all over her legs. I mean, it it was, she even had it on her, like, she looked like a burn victim, honestly. Mm-hmm. She had it on her yeah. eyelids, her face, yeah, her neck. Cool. And I was, I was paying for my sister-in-law's mother to make her clothing that would cover most of it. And then she would be made fun of for wearing those clothes by kids. I mean, it was just a really horrific time yeah, um, and, not, and did she and she did, did she have the, the 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 ridiculous itching that you can get it, it was it was so bad literally every morning if we didn't have time to change and wash the sheets i had a vacuum up there oh god because it was there were i mean on occasion i would stay with her my mother who suffers from eczema too would come over to just knowing what she was going through and would stay. And she said, Nancy, I couldn't, I can't believe, I don't think she's getting any sleep at all, which is probably why she was so moody and so, you know, on top of being mm-hmm. itchy all the time, which would make anybody crazy. Oh, absolutely. She was only five and she was up mm-hmm. all night scratching herself. I mean, literally bleeding. Yeah. And which is why ultimately she ended up hospitalized. Wow. And, and that's just, 
adding to the litany of the things that are now starting to come into your life, the challenges that you're now having to to um, to get through. Well, and believe it or not, I mean, I guess to everybody's credit during that time, I mean, we did end up, you know, we lasted another four years beyond mm. that time um, because my youngest daughter had just turned six, my son was seven, and my oldest daughter was nine. So that was four years after, you know, we're about maybe maybe actually about three in all honesty or just over three that we had survived that. But, you know, it was definitely difficult. And um, I'm sure, you know, looking back, there were things I could have done differently. And I hope that um, my ex-husband has some insight into, you know, Mm -hmm. things that we all could have done differently. We were kind of in survival mode. I mean, it it was just not a great time. And, and. Fortunately, you know, I think that we are crazy about our kids, and today, even now, I think that, you know, my ex-husband has a better relationship with them than he ever did, and I'm grateful for that as well. In fact, I have a few weeks off right now. I almost don't know what to do with myself, Andrew, so I'm so glad I have you to talk to tonight. Oh, that's what I'm here for, Nancy. (laughs) (laughs) 1-800-CALL-ANDREW. That's exactly correct, and if you order now... So, but you know, unfortunately, you know, things absolutely took its toll, and I think in the end, you know, I was different at 24 than I am now, and we all change, and sometimes, you know, that can be great. And actually, I think that a lot of things worked well for a lot of years, and and I look back now too, and I probably would have made different choices too, based on some things that really never worked well, even from the beginning, without kids being involved. Um, but, you know, I think that that just adds a whole other new dimension of, you know, the challenges in, uh, in a relationship. So, uh, But now you have, you, have, you have three children, you're going through a divorce, you're a single woman, and now your liver goes. Well, yeah, in, in 2004, you know, ultimately I think the relationship – sadly became, or I was more aware and, a sh- and and more willing to stand up for myself. But mm-hmm. there were elements of it that were abusive. And and ultimately, the, the, the relationship ended when I called 911. And interestingly mm-hmm. enough, too, and this is one of the interesting things about living in a town like Concord, um, you know, I I called 911, and in the end, I was ended. I ended up, Andrew, believe it or not, I was arrested for assault and battery, even wow. though that's what I was calling for. And I think part of that is, to my ex-husband's credit, he's very charming, he's very persuasive, and he met them in front of the house. And at the time, we were living in a 6,000-square-foot house on three acres in Concord, which is, you know, a very nice town. And... I think that, you know, there was a compelling case made that, you know, I was somebody who I don't feel like I was entirely. But, you know, I think part of that actually might have been true, that things that were important to me then aren't so much now. And, you know, ultimately I think these guys just sided with him. And it was a brief amount of time that I spent in the... uh, at the police station in Concord, but ultimately it was it really was the end of the marriage. And I don't think that 
my ex-husband and I have spent more than four hours talking to each other since then. Um, and that was back in 2004. And and I think, that, you know, for those ten months following, what happened is that he kind of left and was MIA, and I was sitting in this house that was really too big to maintain, way too expensive to maintain, mm-hmm. Um and I was doing well, but you know, when you're a consultant, as we all know, it sort of ebbs and flows. And and we were living there, you know, thinking, you know, we were both contributing, and and suddenly he was gone and not involved with the kids. I think, you know, he it was an escape for him, really, at that time. And I still had three children to take care of. I had a house to run. I had my business to take care of, and I was working outside my home at that time, in an office outside, and. Honestly, I think the stress of the entire thing, which is the one thing I would recommend that everybody sort of take notice of, is that stress is a huge influence or or it can make a huge impact on mm-hmm. the outcome in your life. I mean, I had never been under that much stress in my life. And at the same time, I have these three little kids. They were six, seven, and nine you know, looking at me, saying, you know, <laughs> um, and so, and trying to just r- maintain stability, really, for them. Well, what have been your strategies for dealing with stress? Well, looking back, I probably should have doubled up on my therapy sessions, you know, done more yoga, called my family more, called my friends, like really sort of sought out more help. Mm-hmm. I was kind of like, no, I can do this. This stinks, but I'm going to get through it. And I, I, I wasn't that way the first few weeks. I can guarantee you that. I mean, I did have friends. Thank God that I had one friend. I remember she came over and was like, the the day this all came down, and came over and just like cooked dinner for me and my kids, and stayed over that weekend. I mean, I literally was in bed the first weekend that it happened. I just was in shock and. And she was there, and she was fantastic, and I'm so grateful to her this, to this day. And I think that's one of the benefits that you get, though, out of going mm-hmm. through these things, is that you really, it, it really does show you who the people are who are real, authentic, who really will be with you mm-hmm. despite your situation. Because it's, it's very easy, let's face it, to be friends with p- people who are doing well, financially will, you know, are entertaining you or mm-hmm. sure. having fun with you, taking you out. But, you know, when when that all goes away, and it did for me, and I certainly can't do what I used to do for my friends, but it's interesting to see who has come through and who, you know, who kind of went away. What they call the warm weather fans or the cold weather fans uh, from, yeah. from sports. You know, they're the, the people who... Who really care? They were there. They're there through thick and thin, no matter what. And and nothing, not popular opinion or anything else is going to be why they hang out with you. They're going to be there for you, right? And, and there's always going to be just those core people, right? You find out. You 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 really find out who those people are. Well, and and in so many ways too, I feel so grateful for that because I think a lot of people go to the end of their life and they mm-hmm. don't know that. And and I had the benefit of that, not only when I was getting separated, but even more so when 
10 months after he left, I think the stress got to me in such a high level that I was feeling sick physically. And I kept thinking, like, is this depression? Is this, you know, what is this? But it was more than that. I felt like I had the flu. And then it became a respiratory thing. And ultimately, the week before, I ended up in the hospital for a, you know, a very serious condition. I had been to the local ER twice. And my mother had come out and tried to help me. And and the, it, literally when she left, I said to my au pair at the time, I said, you know, can you take me to the emergency room? Because I didn't want my mother to know that I was that sick. Um, she had been there for several days and taking care of my kids. I was up all night, you know, getting sick. And, and of course, she was hearing that. But, I, I, you know, I said, no, I think, you know, I really did think I had the flu. I didn't think mm. I was as sick as I was. And I went to the ER, and they took blood work again. And, again, like sort of nothing came up. And ultimately what happened is I went away on a business trip, which I probably never should have gone on. In hindsight, I never would have. And I was at the American Business Women's Association annual convention in 2005 in Atlantic City, and I had two presentations to do, and I flew out on a Friday. My presentations were on Saturday morning at 9 and I think at 11. And I'll never forget, you know, the kindness of strangers, too. This man kept bringing me ginger ale tea because he knew I was sick. And I'm in this big ballroom, and between these sessions, I literally could not make it up to my room. Um, and had my most humiliating moment in private mm. little did i know was to come but and vomited in this big planter in this ballroom oh boy and i i knew i knew that i was literally like i was so sick i look back now and i think there's no way that i could do that i just i and i wouldn't i wouldn't have made that choice um I, I did get to the airport. I called a friend. Thank goodness she was my realtor who actually had sold or was listing my marital home at the time. And I said, Casey, you know, I have no ride home. I didn't get a limo. I've been trying to call to see if they can take me to the doc, you know, the hospital. And nobody's available. Is there any way that you can come and get me? She was like, oh, yeah, no, I'll definitely be there. And I, by the time I got to Boston, I was so sick, Andrew, that I could not even get walk off the plane. I, I had a wheelchair. Thank goodness they came. They took me. Brought me to my, you know, baggage claim. Got my bags and took me up to the level that she was waiting for me at. And she took me to my local hospital at Emerson Hospital in Concord. And I just figured, you know what, it's a Saturday night. If I go to Boston, I'll be in triage all night. Nobody will ever see me. And I'm going to end up dying, like waiting for someone to see me. And they took me to Emerson, and literally, I don't remember this at all, because I literally was, like, in and out of consciousness. But my friend Casey says to this day, Nancy, you looked at this nurse when she finally came in and saw you like you had seen an angel. You were just so happy that somebody was there who knew what to do. Wow. And that next morning, I was out of there. I was shipped out of there, and I went to Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center for kidney and liver failure. I had a virus attack my organs, mm. and which is extremely rare. 
and I literally was almost at death's door. I mean, I, I arrived at Beth Israel, and they immediately put me into ICU. Wow. And had you not gone on that trip, do you think that this might would have had a different different outcome? I'm not sure, to be honest with you. I think everything happens, you know, for a reason and when it's supposed to. But uh, because literally things weren't showing up on my in my blood work until it was dire. I mean, it was like, okay, wow. Yeah, her kidneys aren't functioning, her liver's not functioning. And that wasn't the case just a few days before when obviously that was all going on, but not to the degree that, I mean, I failed incredibly quickly. Once I got to Beth Israel, it was one week to the day before I had a new organ. So I, I just remember being there and having my doctors like poke and prod, and then I felt like I was being interrogated. You know, like, where have you been? What have you eaten? How many Tylenols did you take? You know, what medication were you taking? Mm-hmm. Um and then I, I do remember, ultimately, the doctor who, ironically, also lives in the town that I do, just like that doctor who brought me my first daughter. Or um, He lives literally probably two miles away from me. He did my transplant surgery, Dr. Doug Hanto, out of Beth Israel. And mm. he said to me at one point, you know, Nancy, your kidneys are doing better, but your liver is not, and you are going to need a liver transplant. And, you know, at first you think it's surgery. (laughs) I'm like, listen, I don't know anyone who's had a transplant, but I'm like, okay, do whatever you need to do. And meanwhile, not knowing how obviously complicated that is, which is why I feel so lucky. I feel like I'm the luckiest person I know because, you know, the stars, the moon, everything has to be in complete alignment for that to happen. Sure. And I I literally fell into a coma, like, almost immediately after he said that. And sadly, a young woman who was 21 years old, who who lived in Appalachia, Virginia, was in a car accident and was med-flighted to a hospital in Tennessee. Mm -hmm. And she was an organ donor, and she was... That accident was on a Thursday night. She was in a coma until Saturday night when she passed away. And mm. fortunately, she's the woman whose liver I now have. Have you uh, con- been have you been in contact with her family? I have, and um, I learned, you know, and I felt so embarrassed and guilty, I guess, in a way that uh, when I met her mother. I shared, you know, my gratitude because I had these three small children and, you know, I was just so grateful and I was so sorry for her loss and wanted to stay in touch. And I sent, you know, her cards and letters through the organ banks, which is how it's done here uh, in the United States. It's, and she was very gracious and great, you know, glad to hear from me, but didn't want to talk to me directly and hasn't since. Um, I keep her very well informed about my life, but what I didn't know about her daughter is that she was also a young mother, and she had a two-year-old and an Mm eight-month-old at the time of her death. Wow. 
which was, you know, so I just had never thought, you know, I thought maybe she was, you know, on a break from college, not with friends, and or, you know, I just didn't assume that she was a mother. And so we have been in touch, and I try to do, you know, what I can for her children and, and keeping in touch with her mother. And I think other people have reached out to her, too. She, The last time I spoke to her via email, she said that, mm-hmm. I was the only one that she was really in communication with. Mm. And sometimes, you know, it's hard. It's hard on both sides. I mean, a lot of times recipients like myself have a lot of guilt about being the ones to have survived. And believe me, I've asked myself that over and over again. Like, why me and not, you know, not her? And and sometimes, too, you know, organ donor family members have mixed feelings, too, because it wasn't their decision sometimes. Sure to donate their family's organs. Mm-hmm. And even if it is, it's still difficult to know that those organs, you know, are in someone else's, you know, body. But, you know, on the other hand, and I try to emphasize this all the time when I talk to organ donor families too, is that, you know, thank God your family members or yourself have made that decision because so many lives really can be saved. As a result of being an organ donor. Did you come up with an answer to the question you posed to yourself? Why why me? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that the only thing that I can do is do whatever I can do to sort of educate people about the benefits of being an organ donor Mm -hmm. and... And I, I, I do. I feel absolutely like I have an ethical and moral responsibility to spread the word about my experience. Right. Now, I really feel like I am incredibly lucky. You know, I, I've gone through, honestly, I think a lot more than what most people do, you know, by my age in terms, and most recently is what I'm talking about. I mean, the other stuff, not not to dismiss the... Um, the infertility or the eczema or the Asperger syndrome. But, I mean, that's stuff that people deal with all the time. I think that, I think the unique thing about my story is that there was so much happening in such a condensed amount of time and so many complications, too. It wasn't just that I had a liver transplant, which is significant. And, I mean, they say it's one of the most complicated transplants, even beyond heart transplants, because they just don't, Heart heart transplants have been done more often, more frequently, for a longer period of time. Um, But I had a a tremendous amount of complications. They almost elected not to do it. My doctor said, you know, I was too sick, and they really felt that I wouldn't be able to survive the surgery. And if I didn't, you know, that would be a lost opportunity for someone else. So they take it extremely seriously, as they should. Um, as it turned out, I did flatline twice wow. um, during the surgery. I also had, you know, I was in that coma for two months while I was in ICU. I was in ICU for three months. I had brain surgery while I was in the coma, um, and that was because they had to drill a hole in my head to alleviate the pressure, you know, in my brain prior to the surgery, and that became abscessed or infected. Wow. Um, I had aspergillus in my lungs. I had an arterial line infection in my arm. 
I had my pick line became infected. I mean, I, there were lots of different things that were happening that some of them I was painfully aware of. Others I weren't. I wasn't because I was in a coma for two months. Um, so this I is really that piling on. I mean, it's just like there's so much piling on. Well, it was just on sort of like, right, it was like, I, I got out. I, it's like taking one step and going back to getting up and taking another step and feeling like, okay, I'm going to start to make... I mean, I literally remember saying to my nurse practitioner, like, am I ever going to get better? Because I was suicidal. I I was wanting to... I was thinking that I couldn't do this anymore. Um, I had a bad reaction to medication and every bone in my body. I was actually almost written up in the New England Journal of Medicine for having a skeleton that literally looked like a Halloween lit up skeleton because I was complaining about my bones hurting and my my transplant surgeon was like Nancy this is probably psychological I need think you need to get more therapy and I was like listen there is nobody who wants to get better more than I do I can't I could barely get out of my bed I had to live with my parents after being hospitalized for six months I was three months in ICU then I went to Spalding rehab for six weeks then I was readmitted to Beth Israel for failure to thrive, which is usually a diagnosis mm. they give to infants who are premature. Yeah. It's not an adult diagnosis. Um, I was the subject of the Mortality and Morbidity Conference of 2005. And, <laughs> I mean, it just went on and on. It just was. I just felt like I was never going to get better. Um, and it was literally probably, I would say, two solid years of being on the mend. And I don't know, Andrew, if you saw the picture of me with a you know bald head and a Johnny. Uh, no, I did. I it didn't, might have been. Did not get to that. Oh, uh, well, you know. Um, but uh, what happened is I woke up and I found out I had brain surgery because my brother told me. Mm. And he said, you know, half your head is shaved and do you want to see yourself? Which, of course, I didn't at the time. But on the other hand, I thought, well, you know, why not? And he showed me, and I was like, shave it all off. Like, just take it all off. And we'll start over. You know, I'm not doing sure. anything for the next few months. And um, except trying to get better. And then, you know, at the end of that whole hospitalization, which took six months, I couldn't live on my own. I tried, but I had, literally, I had IV drugs that needed to be administered that I was too weak to even figure out how to do. You know, my parents were overwhelmed, and ultimately what happened is I went moved in with them, and we had some home health care people and physical therapists come. Um, I also had an inner ear imbalance, which was causing constant nausea around the clock, Um until we discovered that that's what it was. And they thankfully put a scallopine patch, I think, behind my ear, and that stopped that. But, you know, it was just an amazing process of so many things happening in such a short amount of time, really. So I I really have to ask you now, because before we start running out of time here, what was the turning point for you? Well, I mean, one of them was that, you know, I, I remember being, I think I was in the hospital, I know I was, in a hospital bed, literally crying my eyes out to my parents who were there, 
you know, every day, driving 60 miles a day. You know, they didn't really have the money to stay over in Boston, and they were staying with relatives sometimes, but ultimately were staying in the waiting room, which Beth Israel was so kind to at least, you know, not kick them out. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember just saying, like, I just want to die. I don't think I can do this anymore. And even when I was really, really sick and had... I had crazy dreams, crazy, you know, delusional episodes um, where I thought I couldn't make it. Like, I just can't do this anymore. Mm-hmm. I think I had that during the surgery even where I was pleading with the nurse in my mind, like, I just can't do it. Like, this is too painful. It's too much. Just let me go. And my father said to me, you know, Nancy, your only job right now is to get better. You know, forget about working, forget about getting your kids back, because obviously custody was taken away from me, too, because I Mm. wasn't able to take care of them. Forget about, you know, your ex-husband, forget about working. The only thing that matters is your health, because without that, you can't do anything else. And I was not, I did not take that in, and I was not grateful at that moment when it was said and it probably took a couple of days for it to sink in. But then I started to think, you know what? Um, I'm just going to try to focus on what can I be grateful for. And right now, as much as I miss my kids, there's no way that I could care for them. So I'm going to be grateful that nobody's asking me to do something that I can't do, like make a meal or drive them somewhere or do something with them. Like somebody else is taking care of that. And that's great. So I'm not going to be upset about that. I mean, I'm going to be grateful for that not being asked of me. And I'm going to be grateful for, you know, the fact that my parents are here and they're helping me. And 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 they were. And they were great. My brothers were and their wives were. And, I mean, there were so many people that really did step up and were doing amazing things to help me. And I just had to be willing to accept that. But, you know, in my family and in my life, I was always the one to help mm-hmm. or to take the lead. Hey there. So, yeah. So it was just, it was interesting. It was a whole, the whole situation had changed. And and now the, I was really relying on them, which was not comfortable. Wow. So, so, you, what created for you the, the process of your reinvention? Well, I think, you know, having gone through what I went through, I just sort of started to take on a more, you know, feeling of gratitude mm-hmm. and and really focusing on, like, okay, what really needs to get done right now? And And how now do you help people to reinvent themselves from what you've learned from yourself? Well, I think everybody's situation is different and Mm -hmm. unique. Mm -hmm. And I am really here, hopefully, to help guide people on their own path and just share my story. Because, you know, mine is unique and different from everybody else's, too. I mean, not everybody would agree that what I did was the way to go or, you know, wouldn't everybody's situation and everybody and how people react to you during those times too Mm -hmm. is different. Mm 
So, uh, you know, I think um, it really is individual. What I try to do, especially when I'm speaking in groups of people, which is mostly what I do, is to just share my story and share the techniques, you know, that help me mm-hmm. sort of get out of my funk <laughs> and move on. And and I, I think a lot of it really does have to do with gratitude and and a realignment of your priorities, too. I think that that was huge for me. I have friends right now and I, who I love, and they want to leave a, either a bad marriage, a bad work situation, a bit, but they're attached to the perks, you know, or the lifestyle, or so. And I'm like, if you can disassociate yourself from that, it does make it easier. And I think sometimes, though, for me, it really did take me going from that six thousand square foot on three acres in Concord to living in an apartment with hardly no yard. You know, I had a little backyard space, but. I was kind of like, oh, my God, this is so much easier. You know, my kids are just as happy here as they are at home. You know, maybe they miss a couple of things, but ultimately they really just want to be with me. And I want to be with them, and I can manage this a lot more easily. Mm-hmm. And so this is, all, you know, this is fine. And this is costing me a lot less, and it's a lot less stress. And I think my husband and I got caught up in the whole, you know, scene, I think, of, you know, the mid-80s and maybe mid-90s when things were on the upswing. And, you know, and there were certain, listen, you know, everybody loves to have more. But I think that in so many ways, having less simplifies your life. I mean, I'm not sure that if I had the money I did then, that I, if I had it today, that I'd make the same decisions. Right. Well, that makes sense. And I think, you know, having family, having friends, having people around you who really do understand and get it, and and being around people who really are there, regardless of what your financial status is, is important. So I think, yeah, I think everything has changed. Now, I, I, and, it, no, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, we, you know, as we're starting to get towards the end of the show, I wanted to also mention something else completely different. Uh, what I had read on your website, I want to make sure we talked about. That you talk about off-the-wall marketing ideas for creatively marketing yourself in business on a shoestring. And uh, many of my listeners are in client-based businesses such as coaching and I know we sure could use some good ideas, and I'm wondering if you've worked with people in my arena. Well, yeah, most of the people who I connect with and love and relate to are people like you and me, I think, speakers, coaches, consultants. And, yeah, I wrote that book with Debbie Karpowitz, or Kickham Karpowitz, back in 2000. And it's so funny. I mean, I'm so grateful that we still get royalty checks from them. Um, but I think that the only thing that's missing out of that book, in all honesty, is the whole web stuff and social marketing and media, obviously. And uh, that's just obviously a new, newer, you know, in the past 
few years. This sounds like it's time for a little really... uh, revisit to that book. It, well, it may be. I always say to Debbie. A reinvention, you want, if you will. Should we redo, yeah, should we redo the book? Because in all honesty, it was a big success for us, and I think that we've gotten some great responses. But it really is about differentiating yourself and how are you going to be different than what everybody else mm-hmm. does or says. And I mean, I think my story makes me unique, probably with a certain population. You know, it won't appeal to everybody, but it will with some. Right. So I think that's the other thing, too, that is really important to know and to figure out is sort of how, what market are you really servicing? Because you can look at, you know, the world as being your oyster, but I'll tell you, it's a big marketing challenge to reach everybody as opposed to reaching the people who you really are most qualified to reach out to and to help and make a difference with. So I, I always, you know, say that, you know, number one, it's like you're only as good as your database mm-hmm. and your target market really has to be well-defined. And you should just, you know, really focus on them and and targeting them and offering them something that other people aren't doing and trying to do it in a unique way. Well, you had a, I noticed you had a couple of other uh links on your site uh, that stood out for me, Suddenly Single Now and GrowYourBusinessNetwork.com? Yeah, well, GrowYourBusinessNetwork.com really is my sort of straight business consulting uh, website, which, because I work with a lot of corporate clients, too, on how to reach, you know, their market, mostly small business owners. So I'm grateful that I have Office Depot as a client. We do their web cafe series. Mm-hmm. which is starting up again in September. And, you know, that's that's terrific to have them. And uh, and Suddenly Single Now really came out of my epiphany <laughs> of being suddenly single now. But I thought, gee, I can't be alone, although I felt really alone at the time. You know, I'm living in this, you know, very suburban world feeling like, is there anyone else in this town who's divorced, or am I the only one? Because, you know, everybody in my neighborhood is still married, and and in the extending neighborhoods, and they're all very friendly, but it's, it changes the dynamic socially, and in every way, I think, of how you are, or how you act in this world. So, mm-hmm. I just thought that was, uh, you know, um, something that I wanted to pursue and help other women with. We've changed that site now to Adventures and Reinvention. And there is a Suddenly Single Now uh, key, which you can certainly click on to and hear more about my story and and others like me. But By the way, I have a uh, a local meetup group. I don't know if you are you familiar with meetup.com? Yes, I am. Uh-huh. I have a local meetup group called Reinventing Yourself. Really? Yes. And where is that? Well, New York. So it's any any anywhere in New York that I can create an event. So uh, hint, hint, clue, clue. I just thought I'd throw that out. <laughs> well, I'll be in New York, just so you know, New York City, on August 9th, 10th, and mm-hmm. 11th. Well, so if you have great. one, I'm happy to come. Well, we'll make we'll make one. I mean, the the, the thing is like, hey. Let's let's make let's have an event to reinvent about reinventing yourself, you know, and and we'll start it. Yeah, that's great. Well, I would so be happy to be there. Wonderful. Okay, so believe it or not, we're down to our last few minutes here on Coach's Corner, 
and I definitely would like to thank you very much for being on the show with me. And yeah, why don't you remind you. everybody where they can find you? Yeah, I mean, I think probably uh, Nancy at GrowYourBusinessNetwork.com is probably mm-hmm. the best place. And I am happy to get back to anybody who has a question or thought or response. Um, Are you a tweeter by any chance? I am. What is your I Twitter am, name? You can find me on Twitter. Do you know I don't even know my Twitter name? Oh, you must know your Twitter name. I know, isn't that awful? And I, well, I tweet on my BlackBerry all the time. Uh. In fact, I have a secret crush on Steve Corral, who kept me going, I have to say, during the <laughs> hospital stay. Now, I really do. I, the only thing I looked forward to was the office. And... Um, let me just see here. All right, I'm, I'm going to Twitter right now. <laughs> okay, hold on. Hold on, everyone. <laughs> see, you know, I get on here and there's so many other people who have traveled before me. Oh, my God. All right, let me just send something right now. What can I say? <laughs> Having an interview. Okay. Uh, you want to know what it is? I found it for you. Thank you're you. going to be shocked at the when you find out your Twitter name. You're going to be shocked. <laughs> it's Twitter.com <laughs> slash Nancy Michaels. All right, Andrew, tell me your last name again. Poretz. That's P-O-R-E-T-Z. And my my Twitter name is Twitter.com slash Coach Andrew. I'm actually right now. I just clicked on follow. I'm now following you. Okay, so having an interview with Andrew, what's your last name? Poretz, P-O-R-E-T-Z, but everybody just calls me Coach Andrew. In fact, if you Google Coach Andrew, I'm right at the top. I bet you are. I am. I'm a top Google guy. <laughs> or Coach Andrew. Yes. Um, where can oh, I send I'll, them to? Why don't you just send them to, uh, to listen to this at bit.ly slash Nancy Michaels Show www.bit.ly slash Nancy Michaels show. See, I believe in making things real simple. All right. I'm sorry. www.bit.ly. That's the URL shortener. Bitly. bit.ly. Yeah. Slash Nancy Michaels show. Like the forward slash, right? Yeah. If they do that, they will go right to the show and be able to download it. Okay. So I'm now following you on Twitter. And, again, everyone, thank you for listening to Coach's Corner. We're here with my guest, Nancy Michaels. We'll be back next Monday with body communications expert, Sharon Saylor. You can follow me on Twitter.com slash Coach Andrew and find me on www.myfuturecoach.com. Have an outstanding next seven days, and good night.